everyone, and welcome to the latest Travis Smith Tax Podcast. I'm Siv Devakumar, one of the senior associates in the transaction tax team at Travis Smith. And I'm Lewis Curry, an associate in the transaction tax team. This podcast is being recorded on Friday, the 21st of October 2022, and we'll consider the recent case law developments on the unallowable purpose rule. This rule is a statutory test, which is part of the tax rules relating to corporate debt. It can apply to disallow interest deductions for a UK corporate taxpayer if it's party to the loan in question for a main tax avoidance purpose. Now, Lewis, there's obviously a wide armory of other tax rules which can apply to restrict interest deductions, such as transfer pricing, anti-hybrids, corporate interest restriction, and so on. Why should listeners care about the unallowable purpose rule? Anyone expecting to rely on interest deductions on debt, generally, but especially in the context of lending within groups, needs to think about this rule. In the past, it was generally considered that the risk of the rule applying should be fairly low where debt arrangements were put in place in the context of a wider commercial arrangement. However, there have been a number of recent decisions in the UK tax tribunals in relation to integrated lending where, in what was overall regarded as a commercially driven arrangement, the unallowable purpose rule applied because the debt component had been structured to generate UK tax deductions. Although all these cases at their root involve tax avoidance schemes, the approach the courts took could apply in other, less aggressive contexts with unexpected economic implications. This is partly because of the wide definition of tax advantage and the narrow view the courts have taken to accepting whether a taxpayer is party to a loan for a commercial purpose only, or if it also has a main tax avoidance, so-called unallowable purpose as well. The other crucial aspect, though, is the apportionment rule. The statute says that even if there's an unallowable purpose, Interest debits should only be disallowed to the extent that the debit in question is attributable to that unallowable purpose. This should be done on a just and reasonable apportionment basis, but the courts have taken a more simplistic and binary approach in several recent decisions, with interest deductions on debt being wholly disallowed where there was a main tax avoidance purpose. This is in stark contrast to the other interest restriction rules on the statute books, which, if they apply, might only disallow a proportion of the interest rather than all of it necessarily. By its nature, the unallowable purpose rule is highly fact-specific, so the best way to, to discuss it is using cases as examples. Taking the recent intergroup lending case law, Oxford Instruments concerned the corporate group's restructuring of its US debts. GTI Acquisition Company and BlackRock LLC5, on the other hand, related to funding for third-party acquisitions. In each case, the taxpayer entered into an intergroup loan that generated debits on the interest expenses. So what was Oxford Instruments about? The Oxford Instruments concerned an eight-step debt restructuring plan by a corporate group to achieve a number of US commercial, legal, and tax objectives. At the end of the first seven steps, the US debt had been restructured and there was a US parent company with a UK subsidiary that was treated as its branch for US tax purposes. In the final eighth step, the US parent made a loan to its UK sub. The UK sub claimed deductions on the interest it paid to its US parent and surrendered those deductions to another UK company, which received taxable income pursuant to the first set of steps. Step eight therefore ensured that overall, the US debt restructure was tax neutral for the UK part of the group. And this was a different commercial context, but at its core, Oxford Instruments used a similar tower structure to the ones used in JTI and BlackRock, right Lewis? Yes, that's right, Siv. In JTI, a tariff structure was used to fund the acquisition of a US target company. 
In simple terms, the US parent drew down external debt and pushed the loan proceeds down the Fogger Group by way of a loan to a newly incorporated UK taxpayer. The UK taxpayer then applied the funds to acquire the US target. BlackRock involved the UK tax resident LLC rather than a UK company, but again used a tariff structure to fund and acquire a US target, although there the UK tax resident entity was interposed between US entities and wasn't the direct purchaser of the target. The taxpayer won at first instance, but recently this year the upper tribunal denied all the interest deductions under the transfer pricing rules on the basis that a third party lender would not have made the loan that the US parent made to the UK taxpayer. The decision was therefore not made under the unallowable purpose rule, but the tribunal went through the unallowable purpose analysis and it's the latest decision we have on the test. Okay, so they had different commercial contexts, but in each decision, the debits claimed by the taxpayer was surrendered to other UK group companies to shelter their taxable income. The courts consider that as obtaining the deductions meant the UK group, if not the UK taxpayer, was better off vis-à-vis -vis the revenue, this was a tax advantage obtained by the taxpayer. The next question is whether obtaining that tax advantage was one of the taxpayer's main purposes in being party to the loan in question. How is this test then applied to this? In terms of what a taxpayer's purpose is, the court will ask what the object of the directing minds of the taxpayer was in entering into the loan. This usually means, based on all of the evidence, ascertaining the subjective intentions of a taxpayer's board and, in the corporate group context, also its, its shareholders. The taxpayer and GCI try to argue that interest deductions are the automatic and ordinary consequence of borrowing for a commercial acquisition, i.e. that obtaining interest deductions is the effect of a commercial transaction, rather than being the object or purpose the borrowing seeks to achieve. The court, however, disagreed with this analysis and insisted it had to carry out an evaluative exercise, taking into account all the facts and circumstances to determine whether the taxpayer had a main tax avoidance purpose on the facts. The answer will therefore vary, so so what factors have been given weight in case law. We start with the Court of Appeal in Travel Document Services and Ladbrook Group International, TES. There, the Court of Appeal stated that Maine has a connotation of importance. Looking at other bits of case law, if the prospective tax benefits are significant, the court may be more likely to draw an inescapable inference that securing the tax advantage is a main purpose of holding the debt. This happened in TDS, despite the fact that the debt in question was held for a commercial purpose to start with. Finally, what the loan funds are used for can indicate the purpose of the loan, but it's not necessarily determinative. In JTI, the loan was used to fund the acquisition of a target company, which the court accepted was a genuine arm's length commercial transaction. However, there were other factors which overrode the commercial use of the debt, right Lewis? Yes, there are three main overriding factors which all tie back to the fact that the court is willing to look to the wider group to determine what the taxpayer's main purpose or main purposes are. The first was that the external debt to fund the acquisition was initially at the US parent level. That debt was duplicated, as HMRC saw it, by being passed down to the UK taxpayer intergroup to acquire the target. The group justified this by pointing to strategic reasons for placing debt in the UK, but the problem was the evidence didn't support that. For example, the taxpayer was supposed to have the ability to generate cash to repay the debt, but it was a newly incorporated UK company with no trading activities or assets. 
The loan, therefore, wasn't considered by the court to be a genuine commercial arrangement. The second was that although there was a commercial purpose at the US parent level for acquiring the target, as a taxpayer didn't contribute to the negotiation of the acquisition and wasn't involved in the DD, the FTT therefore didn't accept that the parent's commercial purpose behind the acquisition could be extended to the taxpayer. The third factor was that there was no evidence of genuine decision-making at the UK taxpayer level, so the first tier tribunal regarded the US parent decision-makers as the taxpayer's directing minds. There was a lot of contemporaneous documentary evidence which indicated there was fairly aggressive tax planning happening at the US parent level, which the UK subgroup only became aware of once the deal was about to close, and they realistically had no option but to go along with the scheme. Yes, I think the intergroup lending cases are cautionary tales about taking care of contemporaneous evidence at the group level and not just at the taxpayer level. The courts have been clear that they won't just accept witness testimony asserting that the taxpayers board didn't have a tax avoidance purpose when the contemporaneous evidence overwhelmingly shows that the loan in question was included in the structure solely to generate a UK tax deduction. This was clearly the case in Oxford Instruments. The taxpayer argued that it entered into the loan as part of the group's wider debt restructuring to achieve the US commercial objectives. The problem was that the evidence showed that the US objectives had been completed in the first seven steps. By the time they got to step eight, where the taxpayer entered into the loan, the only outstanding purpose was to ensure that the restructure was UK tax neutral, thanks to the interest deductions generated in the taxpayer. This was reinforced by the fact that a big four accountant came up with two structures to achieve the US objectives, both of which involved avoiding or minimising any net taxable income in the UK subgroup. Oxford Instruments also shows that trying to engineer a commercial purpose won't override a main tax avoidance purpose either. On advice from the big four accountant involved that the taxpayer needed to have a strong non-tax commercial purpose to ensure the unallowable purpose rule wouldn't apply, Step 8 was structured to ensure that the taxpayer would profit from a transfer price taxable margin as a result of the transactions in question. However, the court found that this margin was not a self-standing commercial purpose as it was in substance just an intergroup arrangement put in place to give a veneer of commerciality to the transaction. That conclusion was supported in part by the fact that a few years later, when the taxpayer's interest deductions were threatened by new legislation, the structure in step eight was quickly unwound and replaced by a different structure which didn't generate a margin. That somewhat undermined the taxpayer's argument that entering into the loan had not been solely for the purposes of generating tax deductions. Interestingly, the Revenues Published Guidance states that obtaining relief for the same interest expense in more than one jurisdiction, as happened in these cases, isn't meant to be caught by the unallowable purpose rule unless the structure has non-commercial features. In JTI, the court did dwell on the fact that the structure had arguably been engineered to ensure the interest income received from the UK taxpayer wasn't taxable in the US lender and seemed to have been designed to sidestep the UK anti-arbitrage rules as well. Those rules, which were a precursor to today's anti-hybrid rules, otherwise would have applied to deny the deduction in the UK taxpayer. It does therefore seem clear that the court is willing to apply the unallowable purpose rule to ensure that the wider commercial context of an arrangement doesn't obscure the fact that the loan itself has a main tax avoidance purpose. I think BlackRock is interesting to look at on this question, as there the taxpayer was found to have both a commercial purpose and a tax avoidance purpose in being party to the loan. Unlike GTI, the court accepted that there was decision making at the taxpayer level 
that even if the anticipated tax benefits had fallen away, the deal would have gone ahead without it. However, the court looked beyond the taxpayer to the contemporaneous evidence of the group's purposes at the parent level in order to shed light on the taxpayer's purposes. Together, the upper tier tribunal found that the evidence showed that if the UK tax deductions hadn't been available, the group wouldn't have used an acquisition structure with the UK resident LLC, and the taxpayer therefore wouldn't have entered into the loans. That meant it had to have a main tax avoidance purpose. The BlackRock judgment is unusual in that it elides the tax avoidance purpose behind the existence of the loan with the fact that the taxpayer wouldn't have existed but for the tax scheme, which has not been an argument seen in some of the other decisions. While the statute does strictly only ask about the purpose for which the taxpayer is party to the loan, on those facts at least, the revenue and the courts were willing to take the existence of the taxpayer for solely tax-motivated reasons, as being a proxy for meaning the debt the taxpayer held was tax-driven too. Time will tell that this approach can be restricted to the facts of the BlackRock decision. Having an unallowable purpose isn't the end of the story, though. The key aspect in determining the impact of the rules is the last step, which asks to what extent, on a just and reasonable apportionment, the debits are attributable to the unallowable purpose and therefore have to be disallowed. Taxpayers are trying to argue that if they would have been party to the debt, even without the tax avoidance purpose, and or if they can show the tax avoidance purpose didn't increase the debits from what they would have been without it, then none of the debits should be disallowed. However, the courts have been very clear that the statutory test has to be applied without any gloss, meaning the question is about which debits are attributable to the unallowable purpose. In BlackRock, the upper tribunal supported its conclusion by using a but-for test, reasoning that, but for the tax avoidance purpose, taxpayer would not have existed and therefore the loan and debits would not have arisen. This meant that all the debits were disallowed. The overall trend so far has been to apply the test in a binary fashion with debits being wholly allowed or wholly disallowed rather than engaging in any nuanced apportionment. This can obviously be an economically painful risk for taxpayers to take where they have a main commercial purpose, but the presence of a parallel tax avoidance purpose means that all the debits could be disallowed regardless. However, I think it's important to remember that the case law we've discussed all relate to fairly aggressive tax avoidance schemes, albeit often an overall genuine commercial context. I think the glimmer of hope lies in obiter comments made in Oxford Instruments to the effect that if there's a main tax avoidance purpose, but a taxpayer can show it's also party to the loan, for a self-standing commercial main purpose, and the relevant debits would have been incurred regardless of the tax purpose, then the debits should be allowed. This argument was made in TDS and the Court of Appeal didn't reject it. Rather, the taxpayer failed there because they couldn't provide sufficient evidence to show that they would have entered into a different type of loan, generating similar debits regardless of the tax scheme. This approach is therefore out there, although there isn't any case law yet that applies it. As with much of the unallowable purpose case law, I think it's a case of waiting to see what the higher courts say. Given how fact-specific and multifactorial the unallowable purpose rule is, let's finish off by pulling together some of the strands of what can be learned from the case law and consider some tips to think about in practice. Siv, what's first on your list in terms of the tax structuring itself? My first headline would be that entering into a loan to generate deductions that can be surrendered to shelter taxable income on other loans or activities elsewhere in the group will almost certainly count as a tax avoidance purpose without more. This doesn't mean there's automatically an unallowable purpose, 
but it's more at risk than, for example, a straightforward private equity structure where a bidco draws down external debt to require the target company directly and then claims deductions on that external debt. That said, remember that cross-border deals will be scrutinised more. For example, in relation to the acquisition of a largely non-UK target group, the position is likely to be more defensible if UK Bidco enters into a loan to fund the acquisition cost of the UK target companies only. This is different from trying, as they did in BlackRock, to claim UK tax deductions in relation to the acquisition cost of the entire multinational group. What's next on the list, Lewis? The court will look beyond the board of the taxpayer to its shareholders and other members of the group to inform what the taxpayer's purpose is in being party to the loan. It is therefore critical to ensure that all the contemporaneous communications at taxpayer and group level dovetail with the taxpayer's intended commercial purpose. Importantly, there should include internal correspondence at the parent level and non-privileged communications with external advisors. Furthermore, trying to circumvent this rule by saying any tax advantage has been specifically not taken into account in board resolutions, for example, will only serve to indicate that tax must have been at least of some importance to the arrangement. You shouldn't rely on revenue clearances on other areas of law, such as transfer pricing, as being an indirect blessing that the unallowable purpose rule won't apply and the tax deductions should be available. Neither the advanced then capitalisation agreement agreed with the revenue in respect to the transfer pricing rules in JTI, nor the anti-arbitrage clearance in Oxford Instruments made any difference as they related to different areas of law. The size of the tax advantage, both in absolute terms and relative to the value of the taxpayer or group, is inevitably relevant to the risk of HMRC challenge. In the cases we've discussed, the quantum of tax benefits in question were in the seven or eight figures. While the recent case law has made clear this shouldn't be determinative, the significance of the prospect of tax benefits in TDS meant the court drew what it called an inescapable inference that obtaining that benefit must have been a main purpose. In that vein, obtaining significant and expensive tax structuring advice as to how deductions for interest expense, especially in a cross-border context, may be achieved, can also be an indicator of an unallowable purpose. The revenue likes to reason that if a tax advantage was not important, would the taxpayer incur this expense to find a way to obtain it? That said, obtaining a tax advantage is not an unallowable purpose if it's not the taxpayer's main purpose. Exactly. And the best way to do that usually is to be clear that the loan is being entered into for a main commercial purpose. Often, this will require additional thought in the intergroup context, especially as the commercial purpose at the parent or group level may not be the taxpayer's commercial purpose. None of the taxpayers in the three cases we've looked at had full evidence of their commercial purpose in entering into the loan. So there are a few things to bear in mind. To start with, remember that using loan proceeds for a commercial purpose doesn't automatically make the loan commercial. The court will look for evidence that that specific loan, rather than say the external debt drawn down higher up the group which funds that loan, has a commercial purpose and hasn't been put in place solely to generate tax deductions. Having a commercial purpose when entering into the loan also doesn't provide blanket protection for the life of the investment. In TDS, the taxpayer held a deemed loan for a wholly commercial purpose at first, but when it then entered into a tax avoidance scheme in relation to that loan, the courts held the taxpayer developed a tax avoidance purpose at that point. To count, the commercial purpose has to be self-standing and not an inevitable known consequence. This means that it needs to be a substantive commercial objective 
rather than an engineered construct that is put in place to give a veneer of commerciality to what is fundamentally a tax-driven arrangement. The key, of course, is evidencing all of this from day one, as the court will place more weight on the contemporaneous communications of the key decision makers, that's both at group and at taxpayer level, than on uncorroborated witness evidence. This is a particularly live point where the taxpayer claiming the deductions is a newly incorporated entity. It would be best practice to try to incorporate the taxpayer as early as possible and ensure it's party to any key commercial and tax structuring decisions rather than just rubber stamping decisions that were made at the parent level. It should at least see any external tax advice and give full consideration to it before any decisions are made. Consider also if it would be commercially feasible to use a pre-existing company rather than a new one with no employees, business or assets, as unfortunately forming a new company specifically for the purposes of the arrangement may be taken to indicate a degree of tax planning, especially if it does not have any plans to enter into wider business activities. Both pre-incorporation and post-completion evidence can be taken into account, especially where the transaction documentation doesn't clearly prove that the taxpayer has a commercial purpose. And so the court goes hunting to see whether the transaction planning beforehand and or how the transactions play out afterwards support the stated commercial purpose. That brings us to the end of what we wanted to cover today. We hope you found our brief discussion on the unallowable purpose case law and our practical tips useful. If you'd like to find out more, you can reach us or any of the other members of the Travis Smith tax team through our website at www.traversmith.com. 